You pretend to be separate, to have your own code, something that makes up for the horrors. But they are part of you, and they will never go away. Today was meant to be a display of your power. Instead, I give you a glimpse of the devastation my race can unleash upon yours. Let this be a warning to the world. And to my mutant brothers and sisters out there, I say this. No more hiding. No more suffering. You have lived in the shadows and shame and fear for too long. Come out. Join me. Fight together in a brotherhood of our kind. Uncanny Mystic Minds Podcast. up guys welcome to another uncanny mystic minds so for today i have um i want to go through another book a little bit here um it's the new encyclopedia of the occult by john michael greer and uh it's basically like a big old dictionary in a sense kind of like like an occultic dictionary and has a bunch of different stuff in there from uh people who've been in it like blavatsky and uh, Crowley and other people and um, and just some general terms and general uh, deities or entities and um, just a bunch of random stuff um, so I felt like going through a, a bit of this book and just kind of picking out some ones that I just found you know uh, intriguing that I that I could share and um, yeah so I want to start here uh, I'll, with A, you know, and so I was going to kind of make my way down here and kind of see what see what goes on. So, to start off, I think it'd be, <laughs> I think it'd be cool to start with Abracadabra. You know, it'd be fitting, right? <laughs> so, with Abracadabra, we have a traditional word of power used by Western magician from classical times to the present. Written in the following way, it was used in talismans to cure fevers and asthma. In recent times, abracadabra has been has been used by stage magicians and uh, English mage Alistair Crowley alter the spelling to make it fit his new magical religion of the Lima. And in this new form, the word has been used in the th- Thelemite community. All right, next we have Abraxas. So, Abraxas, a popular magical deity. In the ancient world, Abraxas was depicted on the classical amulet gems as a human-like figure with a rooster's head and serpents for feet, wielding a charioter's whip. The letters of his name in Greek add up to 365, the number of the days in a year, which marked him as a solar deity and a lord of time. Now, with this one, I also think about the the old Santana... uh, album it was Santana Abraxas with a song in it called uh, the black magic woman that was the album of that one all right now we have adept an adept so in most systems of western occult thought a title or grade used for and by advanced students of magic alchemy and other occult subjects in alchemical tradition only those capable of making the philosopher's stone were considered adepts in modern ceremonial magic, similarly, this title is used 
is usually reserved for those who have penetrated the veil of the sanctuary and entered into contact with their higher genius or holy guardian angel. Some confusion has been caused over the years by the use of adept in occult lodges as a grade of initiation, since those who have passed through a given grade ritual may or may not have attained the spiritual experience that grade that grade represents. As a result, the term has passed out of use in many parts of the magical community, except as a label for these grades. All right, now we're gonna have uh, we're gonna do Adonai. You know, with Adonai, it's interesting because uh, I had gotten a, a reading some years back, and they told me some pretty cool stuff. It was kind of like past life reading, and they let me know about. They were telling me about like Atlantis type of stuff, which I did resonate with, and other stuff that I actually resonated with a lot. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the details of that, but they had uh, thrown up. Uh, they they threw up Adonai at the end of that reading, uh, so. Yeah, so anyway, one of the traditional Hebrew names of God, usually assigned to the 10th Sephirah of the Tree of Life, Malkuth, in reading the Bible aloud in Jewish religious services, this name is used whenever the text gives YHVH, that's a yod heh the Tetragrammatron, which is considered too sacred to vocalize. You know, um... Real quick, you know, I remember uh, in one of my uh, mushroom trips back in the day, uh, I felt like I was in a, I had called it like a level or is that what I called it back then? I was like saying I was on some kind of level. That was the terminology I used back then. And uh, in my connection with God during this time, when I had tried to say the word God, I kept not being able to pronounce his name. Like every time I said, like try to say the word God, like nothing would come out of my mouth. It was like complete silence. It was so trippy because I would be able to talk like in regular sentences all besides that. And then as soon as I try to say the word God, I wouldn't be able to say it It was almost like, like it just went completely silent. So I thought that was such a trip, you know, but anyway, so Adonai was among the first of the Jewish divine names to be taken up by non-Jewish magicians and appears frequently in classical magical texts such as the uh, Greco-Egyptian magical papyri. The relation of this name to the God of the Old Testament was sometimes remembered and sometimes completely forgotten. In some sources, Adonai or Adonois is an angel. In others, an independent divine being and instead and in still others, an archon, that is, a power of ignorance or evil. Alright, now here we got Aeon. A word with several different meanings in the occult traditions of the West, in Gnosticism and related traditions, the Aeons were the powers of the transcendent spiritual realms of being, often equated with the stars or constellations of the zodiac. The Aeons were distinct from and opposed to the Archons, the diabolical and ignorant planetary powers of the corrupt created world in which human souls are now imprisoned. <laughs> in some sources, including the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri, Aeon is a god, the ruler of eternity, and may be a Greek version of the Zoroastrian supreme god Zervan, uh, Ankara, lord of time 
In the Lima, the religious and magical system devised by Aleister Crowley, an aeon is a period of some 2,000 years governed by a particular divine force. According to Crowley, the revelation of the Book of the Law in 1904 marked the end of the aeon of Osiris and the coming of the aeon of Horus, the crowned and conquering child. On Crowley's death in 1947, Crowley's student and erstwhile magical son Charles Jones unannounced that since Crowley had failed to properly proclaim the word of the aeon, the aeon of Horus was cancelled. Jones then proclaimed a different new aeon, that of Ma'at, goddess of justice. You know, I can relate to that one, Ma'at. Uh, I remember taking those little, te- well, just because of my birthday um, and stuff like that, uh, I have my, my zodiac tied to Ma'at. All right, alchemy. Alchemy, one of the principal branches of Western occult theory and practice. Alchemy is the occult science of matter and, it, and its transformations. Commonly misunderstood as a futile effort to turn lead into gold as a precursor of modern chemistry or as a primitive form of depth psychology, alchemy is actually a complex, wide-reaching, and subtle assemblage of disciplines united by a common theoretical structure, but extending into nearly every imaginable field of human experience. The basic concept of alchemy is the idea of transmutation. In alchemical thought, Every material thing comes into being out of a common substance or a combination of substances. This common basis follows patterns laid down by nature, but cannot always complete its natural course. Thus, for example, all metals start as a fusion of two principles usually called sulfur and mercury, but not identical to the minerals now called by the same names. Given the right proportions of these principles, moderate heat beneath the earth, and enough time, the results of the combination is gold. As the alchemical proverb has it, though nature uh, unaided fails, most of the time sulfur and mercury are not present in the right proportions or degree of purity. The subterranean heat is either inadequate or excessive or the veins of the rock are broken open by human action before the substance has matured into gold. When this happens, the alchemist must complete nature's work. This is done by separating the substance into its components by purifying them and recombining them under the right conditions to bring them to their perfection. The Latin words solve, dissolve, and coagula, coagulate, are standard alchemical terms for this first and last stage of the essential alchemical process. When this is done with the metals according to alchemical tradition, the result is transmutation of base metals into gold or silver. When it is done with healing herbs, the result is a powerful medicine. When it is done with the human mind, the result is spiritual enlightenment. These changes, important as they are, are the lesser works of alchemy. They require that each substance to be transmuted has to pass through the whole slow process of separation and recombination. The great work of alchemy is the production of of a substance that brings perfection to matter quickly. By simple contact, the philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone, or stone of the wise, is the result of the great work of metals 
heated together with lead, mercury, or some other base metal. It is held to transmute the entire mass of base metal into gold into a gold in a matter of minutes. While current scientific theories insist that this is impossible, the process of transmutation by means of the stone was witnessed repeatedly by reputable observers in the Renaissance and early modern periods. It remains possible, despite modern scientific advances, that matter has possibilities that have not been yet dissolved. Although, of course, this by itself does not prove the reality of transmutation. The word alchemy has complex origins. Its English form comes from the Latin alchemia, which is from the... Uh, oh God, I'm not going to get into this these uh, terms of this different languages. But um, anyway, so chimia means smelting or casting and is related to fluid. Chemi, on the other hand, is probably descends from ancient Egyptian word chem, the black land, which... It, which is what the Egyptians and the and the pharaonic times called their own country. Chemia then must mean something close to the Egyptian art. While some scholars have insisted on one or the other of these origins as the real one, the traditional literature of alchemy is full of meaningful puns and wordplay of this sort. And it's quite possible that the creators of alchemy relished the idea of a term that implied both what they were doing and what they originally learned and where they originally learned to do it. The origins of alchemy, like those of Western occult tradition as a whole, are to be found in the fusion of Greek philosophy. With the ancient cultural legacies of Egypt and Mesopotamia, the two older cultures brought a wealth of practical experience and a strong connection with spirituality to this union. Throughout the ancient world, the craft of the metalworker had been deeply interwoven with magic and religion. In ancient Egypt, the god Ptah was the master goldsmith of heaven, and the chief priests of his primary temple in Memphis had titles such as great wielder of the hammer and he who knows the secret of the goldsmiths. In the equally ancient cultures of Mesopotamia, the secrets of metalwork were sacred mysteries guarded by elusive language. Copper was called the eagle. Crude mineral sulfur was referred to as, as the bank of the river. And so on. To this fusion of sacred and practical concerns, Greek philosophy brought an insistent search for fundamental unities. The Greek philosophers constantly searched for one substance or one process that could be explained by the world. By the time, by the time of alchemy's emergence, the most important school of philosophical thought in the Greek-speaking world was Stoicism. With its teaching of a semi-material or breath that shaped all things, this concept of the one thing that produced all things became deeply woven into alchemical thought. The actual genesis of alchemy out of these uh, disparate currents of thought and practice were apparently the work of one man, a Greek-speaking Egyptian named Bolos out of Mendes. Essentially, nothing is known for sure about Bolos' life. He probably lived in the second century and he wrote several books which he published under the 
under the name of the 5th century Greek philosopher Democritus of Abdera. He is said to have studied with the Persian Magus Ostanes, about whom even less is known. After his after his time, perhaps the first century were two famous female alchemists, Maria and Cleopatra, who were represent, representatively Jewish and Egyptian, and were confused by later writers with Miriam's sister of Moses, Cleopatra the Egyptian queen. Maria was particularly influential as a major theorist, as well as inventor of several important items in, of alchemical equipment. Later in the third century, um, Zosimos of Panopolis wrote a number of important alchemical texts and codified the work of many anonymous alchemists who had gone before him. Other later Greek alchemists include Olympiodorus of Thebes, who lived in the early 5th century and wrote an important commentary. By the time the verge of the great Arab conquest, alchemy was making its transition out of Greek culture into the Middle East as a whole. An important alchemical school had been established at Haran on the road east from the Mediterranean coast to India. Sometime in the late Roman times, the Haranian alchemists pioneered the use of copper as an ingredient in the alchemical process and left some important books. By the middle of the 5th century, additionally pagans and Christians heretics had begun to flee the Roman Empire in large numbers to escape religious persecution. Many of them had ended up in the Persian Empire, where they were taught Greek philosophy and alchemy, among other things, to their host. When the Arabs conquered the Persian Empire in the 8th century, the exiles and their descendants began passing on the same lore to their new Muslim overlords, and launched the long and highly creative tradition of the Arabic uh, alchemy. These alchemists, such as, I'm not going to get into the names, <laughs> Uh, Geber, among most influential of all alchemists, wrote a crucial work on furnaces, providing detailed information on most of the furnace types that would be used until the end of the Renaissance, and was the first writer to describe the preparation of nitric acid. Nitric acid. His contributions to theory were equally substantial. He introduced the sulfur-mercury theory of metals, holding that all metals were formed in the fusion of sulfur. The principle of dryness and flammability. Mercury, the principle of moisture and volatility. Volatility, for for his part, was a physician with an international reputation and the author of medical works that were prized from Spain to India. His alchemical contributions included important works in the interface between alchemy and medicine. Western Europe had little contact with alchemy during the time of the Roman Empire, and Rome's fallout with contact between the West and the East was alchemical research were still continuing. Alright, let's see. The alchemy of Europe started out as a tradition closely derived from Arabic sources, but by the 14th century, original ideas were entering into it, and the great flowering of alchemical writing and research in the Renaissance and early modern periods saw the emergence of alchemical theories in operation. Alright, that one is pretty deep. It really goes on too, so we're going to go to altar. So altar, a flat-topped item or ritual 
or ritual furniture used in many different occult traditions as a support for ritual tools and other symbolic objects. Altars have been a nearly universal feature in Western and Eastern religious practice for thousands of years. In ancient times, the altar was primarily used as a place where sacrifices were offered to gods, uh, to the gods. Most modern pagan and magical traditions place an altar at the center of the ritual circle. The altar in most ceremonial magic traditions is square topped and twice as high as it is across the top. This duplicates the proportions of the double cube. The altar may be covered with a black cloth to symbolize the prima materia or unformed first matter of the alchemist, a white cloth to represent purity, or a cloth of elemental or planetary color, depending on the forces to be invoked in any given working. In modern pagan practice, the round altars are common but square. Rectangular and other shapes are also found in typical Wiccan altar furnishings and, and including an altar cloth, two candles to represent the god and the goddess. The working tools of the four elements, a censer for incense and a bell. Different traditions add additional items to the collection. The altar may be oriented to the east or north depending on the tradition. Many modern pagans also establish one or more household altars in their homes, decorated and equipped with statues, images, magical working tools, crystals, and the like. The diversity of the neo-pagan movement is more than equaled by the diversity of design and arrangement in these altars. In those traditions based off the work of Robert Cochran, an influential British witch of the first decades of the neo-pagan revival, many of the functions of the altar are carried out by the stang, a wooden staff with a forked top. The stang is placed in a direction corresponding to the season of the year, east in spring, south in summer, west in autumn, and north in winter, and decorated with symbolically appropriate items. In tradition, Satanism, a naked woman, is typically used as an altar for, for a parody. Alright, here we're going to get into an amulet. So, amulet, a magical device for, gen for general protection and good fortune. An amulet differs from a talisman in that talismans are made and ritually consecrated for specific, tightly focused purposes. While amulets are more general and often not formally consecrated at all, the use of amulets go back far into prehistoric times, and the oldest known civilizations are rich in amulet lore. The ancient Egyptians fashioned amulets of gold, precious, and semi-precious stones, as well as, as well as less expensive materials. The Ankh, the hieroglyph for life, was among the most common Egyptian amulets, but there were many others, including the Eye of Horus, and the Scarab Beetle, a symbol of the sun. The ancient cultures of Mesopotamia had a rich amulet lore of their own, and did ancient Greece and Rome and the Greek world. Uh, the Ephesian letters were among important ingredients in amulets. The great monotheistic faiths of the Piscean Age, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam brought their own traditions to bear on the lore and use of amulets. Texts from various sacred scriptures came to play a large part in amulets. In Christianity, which did not forbid the use of sacred images, pictures, or statues of the Trinity or 
or the saints that had similar had a similar role. To this day, many conservative Catholics keep a plastic statue of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, or patron saint in their cars to ward off auto accidents. In modern ceremonial magic, amulets are somewhat neglected in favor of talismans and other more focused magical devices. The modern pagan scene, on the other hand, has made much more use of amulets, with the silver pentagram as the, as the most common amulet. Amulets from other magical traditions, especially mojo bags from the hoodoo, are also used in the pagan scene in North America. All right, now we're now we're talking my middle name. All right, Angel. So, in most Western occult teachings, as well as in Orthodox theologies of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, a spiritual being in service of God. Detailed discussions of the nature and powers of angels fill many pages of theological textbooks. The lore of angels is one of the places where Western occult tradition comes closest to the religious mainstream. Although, as with all things occult, there are important exceptions. Angels are divided into various classes or orders. Most Christian uh, analyzes occult or otherwise follow the nine orders of angels first outlined by Dionysus, the, the pseudo Arab, oh shit, of the 5th century. Seraphim, the highest class, who are angels of radiant love, and contemplate the divine order and providence. Cherubim angels are of absolute wisdom who contemplate the divine essence and form. Thrones who also com- contemplate, though some some proceed from contemplation to action. Then uh, dominations, do- dominations <laughs> who are like architects and plan what the lower order carries out. Then virtues, who move the stars and planets and serve as instruments of divine in working of miracles. Powers, who maintain the universe in harmony with the divine will and some of whom descend to interact with human beings. Principalities, who have nations and their rulers in their keeping. Archangels, who have responsibility for religion and look after holy things. Angels, the lowest class, who take care of minor affairs and serve as guardian angels to individual human beings. The Jewish tradition, followed by most uh, Kabbalistic magical systems, divides angels in ten orders corresponding to the ten Sephiroth tree of life. Alright, so here we have the, oh my god, I can't even pronounce this, the Chayoth, holy living creatures, the highest of the angels who bear the throne of the divine. Then we have wheels or whirling forces. Angels of wisdom described as wheels within wheels covered everywhere with eyes. Then we have the mighty ones, angels of understanding. Then we have the shining ones, angels of mercy and magnificence. The burning ones, angels of severity and justice. Then kings, angels of beauty and harmony sparkling ones angels of victory and children of the divine angels of glory then we have strong ones angels of the foundation of the universe uh, isham human beings angels of the material world it is worth noting that 
In the Kabbalistic system, archangels are a separate and higher class of being, dwelling in the world of uh, Bria, while angels of the ten orders dwell in Yetzirah. Depending on your choice system, then archangels are either the second lowest class of angels or the highest of all. This sort of uncertainty is common in angel lore. While most occult writings accept that standard religious views of nature and angels, there are alternative views. In some occult traditions, particularly those derived from theosophy, angels are held to be a part of the Devic kingdom, an alternate track an alternate track of spiritual evolution that starts with elementals, rises through fa- uh, fairies and divas, and culminates with the angels and archangels. This parallels the human kingdom, which starts with one-celled organisms, rises through animals, and ordinary human beings culminates and culminates in adepts. Angels play an important role in the Kabbalah and related magical systems. They are central to most Christian magical systems as the only spiritual entities other than God whom Christian magicians are supposed to consort. In the New Age movement, finally angels have become popular in recent years and a flood of recent angel books from New Age perspective can be found on the bookstore. Alright, here we have the Ankh. So, an ancient Egyptian symbol and hieroglyph for life. A Tau cross with a loop above it can be found in Egyptian texts and religious art from the Old Kingdom onwards and was much used as an amulet through Egyptian history. In modern use, it has, has come to be associated with the beliefs of Akhenaten and the heretic pharaoh of the New Kingdom who attempted to prescribe traditional Egyptian religion and replace it with a monotheistic cult of Aten. The Defied Sun and Source of Life Various magical traditions have adopted the Ankh as a symbol in modern times, including the Golden Dawn, which uses it as an adeptus minor ritual, and the ancient mystical order Rosicrucius. So, it was also a common ornament in the American pagan community in the last few decades of the 20th century. Alright, here we have anointing. The application of oil to a person or object, the act of anointing has been a part of magical practice for thousands of years. In ancient Greece, magicians who wished to consecrate a stone as a dwelling for a spirit or god would anoint it with olive oil and drape it with a garland of uh, flowers while reciting an appropriate spell. Similar rites were used in many ancient cultures to consecrate statues of the gods and goddesses. The Catholic Church uses consecrated oil in three of the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and ordination of priests, and many other Christian churches have retained some aspects of this tradition. Medieval and Renaissance forms of magic often use an anointment with oils as a way of consecrating working tools for magical use. In modern magical practice, anointing is used in initiation initiation rituals, blessings, and wickening ceremonies, as well as a range of practical magical workings. Candle magic in particular generally involves anointing one or more candles with scented oil. Alright, 
so continuing on we're gonna get to anubis so i have a thing for anubis for sure he's a yeah i don't know i feel like a, a connection with a, a anubis for sure um anyway so the messenger of osiris and protector of the dead anubis was among the more important deities of the ancient egyptian funerary uh, rituals and plays a major role in the myths of osiris in the golden dawn two officers in the outer order made use of the visualized god forms of anubis during ritual workings the carex who guards the inner side of the portal in the neophyte grade is anubis of the east the sentinel who guards the outer side of the portal and compares and and prepares the candidate is the anubis of the west all right now we're gonna uh, twist our tongue here even more and uh, this one is opaca opaca opacastasis okay something like that this is the theory that all things at the end of time will return to their original perfection the doctrine of opacastasis was held by a variety of different groups at various times and has been interrupted interpreted in at least as many different ways among the stoics a belief in the absolute power of fate led some theorists to suggest that at the end of vast cycles of time the planets would return to some original configuration since in stoic theory all earthly things were completely controlled by astrological factors this would cause everything on earth to return to its state at the beginning of time Thereafter, history would repeat itself exactly in every detail until the planets ag again returned to their primal positions and the cycle began yet again. This doctrine of the eternal return was resurrected by the uh, Nietzsche in the late uh, Nietzsche in the late uh, 19th century as a part of his revolt against Christian attitudes, but found few takers. In heretical Christian circles from ancient times to the present, the doctrine of apocastasis took on a different form. The early theologians uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen had speculated that at the end of time, even Satan and his fallen angels would be redeemed in a return to the primal perfection of creation. This view was declared heretical by church councils and repeatedly denounced but has continued to find adherence ever since, especially in Gnostic and quasi-Gnostic traditions. All right, now we're going to get to the age of Aquarius. So in astrology, as well as popular culture, the approaching age of the world, which will supplant the present Piscean age, the astrological ages are marked out by a procession, a slow wobble in the Earth's axis that moves the position out of the sun at solstices and equinoxes slowly backwards through the zodiac. The Piscean Age in occult philosophy is seen as the age of Christianity, dominated by Pisces at the spring equinox and Virgo at the autumn. It is no accident, according to this way of thinking, that the fish and the virgin are among the most ancient Christian symbols, or that Piscean self-sacrifice and Virgoan purity have, have been the core spiritual themes of the last 2,000 years. With the coming of Aquarius, the water carrier, and the line move into the equinoctial uh, stations. 
and Aquarian benevolence and self-assertion are uh, Leonine self-assertion are expected to come to the fore in the spiritual traditions of the next uh, 2,000 plus years. The exact date of arrival of the age of Aquarius has been subject to a great deal of speculation. However, much depends on whether Aquarius is seen as the actual constellation of the stars on one hand or as a 30 degree section of the heavens more or less overlapping the position of the constellation on the other. And some accounts would place the beginning of the age of uh, Aquarian age some years in the past. Swiss psychologist and astrologer Carl Jung, for example, saw 1940 as the beginning of the new age. The movement of major stars across the cusp of the existing signs has been used in predictive measure and the crossing of Regulus and the great star of the heart of Leo into the sign of cancer in 2012 has been cited by numerous astrologers as the beginning of the Aquarian age. On the other hand, those writers who rely on the actual constellations have noted that the sun's position at the spring equinox will not leave the sprawling constellation of Pisces for well over a century, with estimates of ranging from uh, 2157 to 2374 uh, for the starting date. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. There's there's different beliefs there. All right, now we'll get to archetype. In Jungian psychology, a uh, psychic dominant, a center of psychological energy that tends to surface in human consciousness through similar forms and images around the world and throughout time. According to Jung and his followers, the archetypes are inner psychological expressions of the fundamental human instincts. They correspond precisely to the gods and goddesses and other mythic figures of the world's religion. Alright, well now we're going to get into Archon. So, in Gnostic thought, one of the evil, or at least ignorant, ruling powers of the fallen material world, the Archons were either opposed to, oblivious to the Aeons, the ruling powers of the higher spiritual world, many versions of Gnostic ideology, of Gnostic theology identified the Archons with the gods or intelligences of the seven planets, just as the Aeons were often identified with the stars. The chief of the Archons was Yaldabaoth, as also Saklis and Samuel. In certain other traditions, the same word is used as a synonym for Archangel, or as a term for angels having rulership over human nations. One Golden Dawn instructional paper seems to equate Archons with Fays, a suggestion which puts an entirely different light on much tradition, uh, traditional fairy lore. Yeah, I pretty much agree with the earlier part of this uh, paragraph. That's kind of how I'd kind of seen it. All right, now we're going to get into astral body. In magical philosophy, the aspect of the human individual on the astral plane or level of concrete consciousness it is the vehicle of emotions and desires and of, of all the activities of the mind that deal with sensory perceptions. The five aspects of the lower, lower self, memory, will, imagination, emotion, and thinking operate entirely on an astral level until access to the mental level is achieved by meditation and inner development. The most widely known feature of the astral body is its ability to separate from the physical and etheric bodies and travel through the astral plane this ability 
The power of astral projection is a conscious and developed version of something every human being does during sleep. In the process of entering into incarnation before birth, according to the occult teachings, the astral body is built up from the energies of the seven planets of traditional astrological theory. As the soul descends toward incarnation, after death, the same energies are returned to their source in, their, in the period after the second death. When the etheric body has been discarded and no longer binds the astral energies in place, uh, astral light. So, in the writings of Eliphas Levi and other 19th and 20th century occultists, the great magical agent, the substance of stellar influence through which every magical operation has its effect. Levi and his followers identified with astral light uh, with animal magnetism and other Western terms of etheric energy, a usage that has helped add to already confused terminology of the planes. <laughs> so speaking of planes, here's astral plane. So in occult philosophy, the realm of concrete consciousness the level of reality that corresponds to the human experiences of dream, vision, out-of-body experience, and ordinary consciousness. The astral plane is located between the etheric plane, the level of subtle life energy, and the mental plane, the level of abstract consciousness and meaning. As with all the planes of occult theory, the astral is above or below other planes only in a metaphorical sense. In reality, all the planes in interpenetrate the realm of physical matter experienced by the senses. The astral plane is the most important of the planes from the point of view of practicing uh, of the practicing magician, since it is on the astral level that most magical energies come into manifestation. It stands on the border between the timeless and spaceless mental and spiritual planes. On the one hand, the uh, and and the etheric and physical planes within space and time. On the other, it is it is on the astral level, therefore, that patterns from the higher planes take shape before descending fully into space and time. And the magician who can access this plane freely and effectively can influence the way these patterns work out in the world of ordinary experiences. Cool. All right, here we have astral projection. The process of separating the astral body from the physical and etheric bodies producing what is often referred to as an out-of-body experience, or OBE. Methods of astral projection have been taught in magical traditions for many centuries at, at least, and most of the magical systems act, active at present include effective techniques for this operation. According to magical theory, astral projection happens to naturally occur every night during sleep and is responsible for the experience of dreaming controlled so-called lucid dreaming is thus one common way to, to develop the knack of astral projection other methods uh, range from the induction of trance states to the construction of a body of light by visualization and controlled breathing followed by the transfer of consciousness to the secondary body uh, by an act of will Different magical traditions place widely different levels of importance on the art of astral projection. In some systems, it is considered to be little more than a stunt, uh, use, useful primarily as a way to develop will and imagination. 
In others, the capacity to leave one's physical body at will is seen as a central goal of magical practice or even as essential requirement of magical initiation. In the alchemical writing of Marianne Artwood, the entire body of alchemical alchemical teaching and symbolism is reinterpreted as a cryptic way of talking about astral projection. That's cool. Yeah, this reminds me of... uh, the last part about the the goal that they have there uh, to leave one's physical body and all that stuff yeah, that reminds me of what uh, my buddy the NY Patriot uh, would talk about that's one end of the spectrum you know I even heard him recently talking about this on an interview so he definitely uh, he definitely reps that too it's pretty interesting alright we're gonna start to wind it down here with the A's and go to astrology so the art and science of divination by the position of sun, moon, planets, and stars relative to a position on the surface of the earth. Astrology is among the most ancient branches of occultism still being practiced today. Its essential concept is, is that the position of stars and planets at any given moment can be interpreted as a map of the subtle forces and factors in play at the moment. When a person is born, an event takes place or a question uh, or a question is asked the characteristics of the exact moment in time when these things happen are mirrored in the heavens and can be read by those who know how central tr- to tradition western astrology is a vision of the universe as a matrix of forces in which everything affects everything else the same energies that flow through the stars and planets also pulse through the minds and bodies of individual human beings and the movements of the heavens are thus mirrored in subtle ways by events on earth many older accounts of astrology approach this awareness by this uh, by the way of the neoplatonist philosophy that underlies most western occultism while many modern astrologers prefer to speak in terms of psychologist Carl Jung's concept of synchronicity either way the basic concept is the same well all right guys I think that's a pretty good uh that's a pretty good uh ending point for right now yeah this is a pretty a pretty uh thick book with all types of different shit in it so yeah it's pretty cool we got we got through some of the A's today and uh hope you guys found it interesting and uh take care and I'll catch you guys on the next episode peace Uncanny Mystic Minds Podcast. <laughs>